You're listening to Utah Lake Facts, Fiction, and Fun. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Utah Lake Facts, Fiction, and Fun podcast. My name is Sam Brager, the podcast host and outreach coordinator for the Utah Lake Commission. Our topic today in the episode is in regards to a book called On Zion's Mount by Jared Farmer. You know, that might be a name that'll catch you off guard a little bit. You know, what does it have to do with Utah Lake? You know, Jared Farmer, he presents this book as the creation story of a landmark, which is actually Mount Timpanogos. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what does that have to do with Utah Lake? Now, the premise of his book, not only the creation of Timpanogos as a landmark locally, but explains the movement from Utah Lake as the central landmark pre-settlement era to the effect that settlement of pioneers here in the area had upon the lake and the movement towards Timpanogos as the landmark, the central part of society instead. So we won't go into the entire book today. We just wanted to cover a few uh, excerpts just from the very beginning of the book, actually. And you know, potentially we could cover this more in the future. But to provide a little bit more detail on what the book is, we'll kind of go over this a little bit from Mr. Farmer's own words. So he explains that the book revisits the terrain of the past in a sequence of three parallel narratives. Each begins long ago, you know, we're talking late 18th, early 19th century, and continues to the near present. So the first part that he covers is the bioregional history. The setting is the eastern Great Basin, what's now called the Wasatch Front. Um, He says, here I reconstruct the water-based geography of what used to be called Utah Lake Valley and illustrate the former centrality of Utah Lake and its fish to indigenous peoples. I narrate the great American story of the colonization of the Great Basin by the Latter-day Saints under Brigham Young, a migration that had devastating consequences for the Lake Utes. Then I outline the gradual process by which Utah Lake became diluted as a fishery, a resort, and a symbol. So in the second section he covers, he explains uh, that he's divided the cultural geomorphology of Mount Timpanogos, Utah Lake's foil, into complementary halves. Part two resembles local history in the main setting as Provo. After providing background on Mormons and mountains, I explore why and how people from one particular city affiliated themselves with one particular mountain in the early 20th century. So he definitely goes more into Timpanogos itself, including the main protagonist, Eugene Roberts, who was a director of athletics at BYU in the 1910s and 20s, who promoted Timp through a mass annual hike. So pay attention to that part here, because we'll explain a little bit more about the effect that uh, Eugene Roberts had on the lake. Uh, His third part of the book moves away from the linear and the local. It might be described as extra-local history. Uh, He explains, Here I move back and forth in time and space to show how Roberts and his collaborators marked Timp with Indianness. Euro-Americans have often expressed their desire to feel native by playing Indian. This cultural tradition has a geographic component. So he covers uh, numerous U.S. landmarks, some familiar, some might not be. Uh, and continues to make that point about Timpanogos itself. So he starts with Utah Lake because that's where it started. The indigenous peoples that were here, Utah Lake was the central landmark, if you will, of the area. Wanted to share a couple passages, again, from the introduction to his book that explain what we're talking about. So he describes, Utah Lake occupies the center of Utah Valley, which occupies the center of Utah County, which occupies the center of Utah. The names expand outward concentrically with decreasing specificity for a reason. In the 19th century and for untold ages before, this lake defined a place and a people. 
Indeed, in its original usage as a place name, Utah signified the lakeside home of the Utahs. The name was not endemic. Colonial invaders, first Spaniards, then Mexicans, then Americans, imposed it. At the time of contact, the natives called themselves fish eaters, lake people, or the Timpanogos, a name drawn from the river where the lake fish spawned. The lake of the Timpanogos was a haven in a hard, inconstant land. Even in the thinnest year, the natives, now called Utes, could procure fat trout in spring. In describing more just how much Utah Lake was a part of the indigenous people's lives, Farmer explains lake people, or fish eaters, clustered along the streams that fed into Utah Lake. The most important fishing and wintering site was the mouth of Provo River. The bands that used this location as their home base called themselves Timpanogos, referring to the rocky river in which they fished. Expert fishers, the Timpanogos Nuche, used tools of harvest such as woven squash bush nets, willow weirs, spears, and bows. At spawning time in spring, the Timpanogos clubbed masses of fish to death, shot them with arrows, trapped them in weirs, or wrestled them out with bare hands. The fish could be eaten raw, cooked, or dried. Sacks of dried fish were buried for storage. Anthropologists estimate that fish accounted for 30% of the Timpanogos diet twice as much as for the Utes of western Colorado. Even so, a lot of calories had to come from other sources. Spring was a fleeting season of abundance. In the summer, the Timpanogos retreated to the mountains to gather service berries and elderberries. In the late summer and fall, some of the men stayed in the high country to hunt big game, while others returned to the valley to harvest seeds as well as crickets and locusts, using fire to corral the protein-rich insects. The hunters returned to the lake for the fall migration of birds. Winter brought the lean days. For long stretches, the Timpanogos had to get by with dried fish reserves, roots and bulbs, and desert fruitcake, a powder bar made of berries, ground insects, and animal fat. Because of its stable fish resource, Utah Valley was the most densely populated place in the eastern Great Basin. The valley supported several semi-permanent villages composed of wikiups made of bulrush and willow. At critical moments in the food calendar, especially winter and late spring, the Timpanogos or today known as the Provo River, hosted hundreds of people. This rich anomalous ecosystem attracted outsiders. In 1849, American settler population, the Latter-day Saints or Mormons, began colonizing Utah Valley. These farmers became fish eaters too, as they struggled at first to establish an agrarian economy. Here at the shoreline, natives and newcomers coexisted edgily for one generation. Under the guidance of their prophet, Brigham Young, the saints aspired to redeem their red brethren, the Lamanites. In practice, hostility supplanted harmony. Settlers and Indians clashed repeatedly at the mouth of the Provo, or the Timpanogos River, the best fishing site in the valley. Ultimately, with the federal government's blessing, the Mormons forced the starving remnants of the Timpanogos to move to a distant reservation. Without the lake people, the lake stopped being the center place. Nonetheless, Utah Lake remained significant to the second generation of settlers as an economic and recreational resource. The presence of water still set the valley apart. However, he continues, in the 20th century, things changed. Gradually, Utah Lake was marginalized. As a result of local overuse and state mismanagement, the trout fishery degenerated into a carp pond. Then, during World War II, the federal government built a colossal steel mill on the lakeshore. The water acquired a reputation, not undeserved, for being polluted. 
As local recreationists looked elsewhere for fishing, boating, and swimming, Utah Lake lost its centrality. By the end of the century, it was perceived as just one element of the valley rather than its essence. Utah's eponymous lake had symbolically shrunk. In 1996, in conjunction with the state centennial, a local newspaper ran the headline, Timpanogos has always dominated Utah Valley. The accompanying story had nothing to do with a lake or a river. It was all about a mountain. To listeners, you may be asking yourself, how does Timpanogos replace Utah Lake? You know, how does a mountain become the central focus when the lake was before? Well, Mr. Farmer continues in his introduction, people see what they want to see, but vision, like desire, changes over time. In the mid-19th century, people didn't see the landmark called Timp because it didn't yet exist. Mount Timpanogos didn't even appear as a named feature on maps. To settlers, it was just another long ridge in the mountains, which even in the aggregate didn't merit recognition as Utah Valley's outstanding natural feature. That distinction belonged to the lake. What caused a mountainous space to become the mountain place called Timp? Remarkably, it was a promotional campaign. In the 1910s and 1920s, boosters from Brigham Young University and its home city, Provo, desired their own celebrated mountain. To realize this goal, they organized mass community hikes to what federal surveyors had determined, mistakenly, it turns out, to be the highest point in the Wasatch. Promoters pushed a wonder mountain. The point man, BYU Athletics Director Eugene Timpanogos Roberts, wrote and disseminated the original fake Indian legend. Intuitively, he understood a geographic principle. Great landmarks are storied landmarks. Since Mount Timpanogos possessed no usable paths, boosters invented one. Ultimately, they failed to turn their legendary mountain into a national landmark, but they succeeded in making a local one. In local collective memory, legendary Indians in the Rocky Highlands replaced historical Utes in the watery lowlands. Notwithstanding the Mormon fixation on pioneer history, the story of Provo's colonization, a violent, intimate chronicle of Mormon-Ute relations, fell to the margins of consciousness by the 1910s when the legend of Timpanogos began to circulate. As a memory site, Mount Timpanogos encouraged forgetting. According to the stories told by hikers, the unnamed Indians of olden days were mountain people too. In short, the sense of place surrounding Timp concealed a double displacement the literal displacement of the Timpanogos Utes, and the symbolic displacement of their lake. The same large-scale historical forces that strengthened one landmark weakened the other. Utah Lake was an emblem of the Aquarian Age, a time when people necessarily developed intimate relationships with their local water resources. Before the 20th century, fording a stream, carrying water from a well, bathing in a mineral spring, collecting ice, were everyday American experiences. In the subsequent hydraulic age, water use went indoors, even as water knowledge went underground. Today, only technocrats and technicians develop familiarity with waterworks. For most residents, it's enough to know that potable water arrives through one set of invisible pipes and wastewater leaves through another. Visual and recreational contact with faraway nature has largely replaced tactile and workaday contact with nearby nature. In this respect, Timp symbolizes our time. In these pages of the introduction of On Zion's Mount by Jared Farmer, it's interesting to see what he proposes that, you know, as a local Utah County resident, I, you know, I grew up here. 
heard the legend of Timpanogos and, and heard various things about stories about uh, the indigenous people that were here and, and how settlement went. But I'm definitely intrigued and going to be reading into the book more uh, because it seems that the history that I seem to remember does not seem to be very accurate. And yet the story he's telling here seems so right in a way. Um, you know, I know that I shared a lot of different sections from his, his introduction and the, and the pages. The book is a decent sized book. You know, it's probably a little over 400 pages, maybe. But this idea that the lake was the central part of society here, you know, it was a different culture. It wasn't agrarian. You know, they were hunter gatherers and they needed to have the fish source that Utah Lake was as something that provided stable food for them. And even then, when the settlers came in the beginning, it also had that centrality. There were fish there for the pioneers as they settled and tried to get the agrarian culture started. You know, in difficult times, Utah Lake was what they relied on for food. And it was some of the best fishing known. As I glance through some of the sections later in his book, he talks about how well-known the lower Provo, and by lower Provo, I mean like just up from the lake, was recognized and the lake itself recognized for how good the fish was. People up in Park City and Heber would pay a good price for fish that came from Utah Lake. Those cutthroat trout and everything else that was in there, people wanted it and they wanted to recreate there. He goes on also in the book to talk about the, the resorts that were at the lake and the ways that people utilized it. And yet, society turned away from the lake and in most part, from what I can read in his book and also from uh, the information we have working for the commission, it was because of abuse of the lake, uh, of the, the nature that was here. I guess in us sharing these, these thoughts from the introduction of his book, uh, like we said, maybe it's a topic we can cover again in future episodes, but we hope it causes you to think about Utah Lake, the history it has here, and the uh, resource that it was for people before it was abused. And in some ways, that's what we'd like it to be again. It's not going to be exactly what it was before. But Utah Lake is the significant landmark here in the area that stands out from anything else. And if we can care for it and protect it and enhance it for current and future generations, it can be the central part of our society again. So if you want to learn more about the story, again, it's a book called On Zion's Mount by Jared Farmer. Um, just a book that uh, one of our staff was aware of, somebody recommended. Um, probably can find it. Most libraries are online easily. Uh, I guess we'll put a link to it somewhere so you can find it online if you want to look into it. Hopefully as you read and learn about Timpanogos and how it became a part of our, our society, you learn a little bit more and appreciation for Utah Lake and what it was and what it can be for society as well. If you heard something you liked in this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. While you're at it, take a second and share this episode with someone else you think would like it. Help us spread the word about the facts, fiction, and fun of Utah Lake. You've been listening to Utah Lake, facts, fiction, and fun. For more information and resources, visit utahlakecommission.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening.